0: often talk about how the commandments themselves were given really not just um, to catch people doing wrong, obviously that's to miss the whole spirit of the commandments, but in reality they were given by God to Israel as a, honestly as a gift. Uh, they were a people, as many of us may recall, who had come out of generations of, of bondage and enslavement and they lacked a national identity and a kind of overall governing sense of who they were as a people. And the Lord gives them this law. The center of this, this the law was these ten words, these ten commands. Jesus, of course, took it even further. These, he, he told us that they were not only commandments, but they were principles of grace. He talked about not just what they were telling us not to do, but also what they were encouraging us to do. And he himself divided them into two pieces, didn't he? He talked about how we could think of them as two halves, or at least um, Ordered in two ways. He said the first part of the commandments can be thought of as a reminder to love God. He talked about loving God. He says he can summarize it this way. You should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is no easy um, or small commandment. He says you can summarize the first four that way. He says the second part, though, you can, you can think of in this way. You should love your neighbor as yourself. He talked about loving people. So Jesus takes it from just this broad sense 10 commands, and he brings them into two pieces, and he says, love God, love others. It's about loving the Lord, it's about learning how to love people well. And, and this has so much to do with what he taught us about what real success looks like. We come to this eighth command, this eighth of the 10. We're reminded that it's a very simple one. Um, all of us can see here in the 15th verse of Exodus 20. It says, you shall not steal. I think obviously the command itself forbids outright theft, we would all agree. It goes without saying. That the Bible reminds us there are such a things as what, something that is right something that is wrong. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to take what isn't ours from someone else. It's wrong to rob. It's, whether it's through fraudulent, the manipulative, or deceitful practice. Or whether it's through some type of violent action. The Bible makes it clear that to steal is wrong. I think we get that. You know, in your handout... Um, I put a, a portion from a, a commentary in G. Campbell Morgan. It's sort of utilized as a foundation point because the scripture itself reminds us that we're not only to be uh, people who are inclined towards, I would say, not doing things, but we're also inclin- called to be a people who are honest and caring and giving and trustworthy. And so look at this passage here. Look at this quotation. It says this. He says, Morgan writes, the sin of stealing is terribly prevalent in this A matter of fraudulent getting. In this age, when a man's worth or a person's worth is estimated by the amount that they possess, the lust of possession seems to destroy the principle of honesty And thousands of those who, in other matters, are really amazingly or scrupulously careful. In certain circles, also trickery, dishonesty, lying, are all looked upon as evidences of shrewdness and acumen in business matters. He says, the commandment that governs a very large percentage of commercial life today is not, thou shalt not steal, but... That shall not be found out. And unjust weights, false measures, and by far the most common of all lying advertisements it says all break the Eighth Command. And it really is, you know, a reminder because that, you know, so much about our culture, it pr- does prey on the gullible and the naive. And I don't know, if, you know, there's just been this, uh, uh, you know, as the culture has become more and more wired and digital We have a lot of new things um, and new ways of being uh, robbed. And, uh, you know, we are constantly being reminded about, be careful about, you know, identity theft. Um, I hear reports all the time, uh, particularly of the elderly who are being preyed upon by predators who are trying to exploit them and take advantage of them and uh, represent things improperly and and rob them, uh, even of what little they have sometimes. And it's, uh, it's a very uh, real part of our culture. And I don't think all, any of us actually get through life without being touched by it in some way, shape, or form. I remember what Will Rogers said when he was talking about the gullible and the naive and how they're taken advantage of, and he was using the analogy of the Brooklyn Bridge. And he said, you know, I'd rather be the person who uh, bought the, the Brooklyn Bridge than the one who sold it. And the idea here is that mean people, um, in the end, mean people, rapacious people, people who manipulate who demean, who abuse and take advantage of the poor and the innocent will ultimately have to stand before God and give account for what they have done to those who are, are not able to protect themselves. And so we understand that some people who would never steal from ordinary people also justify you know, smaller versions of, of theft from people maybe because they say, well, they're rich and they're wealthy and so they don't need it anyway or they won't miss it or from corporations or a business because after all, I mean, you know, they sort of take advantage of people or from the government because after all, we're all overtaxed anyway. I mean, the point is there's a lot of rationales and justifications that can go in for it. But you know what? Uh, Jesus did not in any way, shape or form teach us that somehow it was okay to engage in selective uh, morality. He didn't really leave us that option. he said to, to those who asked him, you know, what should we do about this tax that we're forced to pay by Rome you know, they're, they're oppressing us. We shouldn't, do we owe them anything? There were a lot of people that wanted Jesus to stand up and be a, a, a physical revolutionary. And Jesus, when they threw him a coin, they said, what should we do about this issue? Jesus said, you know what? Whose face is on this coin? They said, Caesar's face. They said Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. He says, give him what he's due. The, he, Jesus was saying in the final analysis, this is not even what matters most anyway. He was really, uh, but at the same time, Jesus spends a lot of time Telling people, and So on the one hand, he's reminding everyone, don't, don't try to justify uh, our own responsibility to live with the degree of integrity. And, and, and don't try to justify cheating and stealing. That's one hand. And Jesus was reminding everyone to not sort of utilize the fact that someone else has more and we have less as a, as a rationale for saying it's okay. On the other side, Jesus had a lot to say to, to people of, of wealth and people of power, particularly people who had attained a lot of that wealth in improper ways. He constantly told people who, who had means or who were given a degree of prosperity in this life to take into account the fact that they had been given something, that they were more um, responsible for stewarding properly in a way that was God-honoring and a blessing to other people than if they didn't have it. He constantly talked about being rich towards God. There was one occasion where Jesus, for example, uh, in, in Luke 19, and this isn't in the handout, but... He, he, he goes to the house of this man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, who is famous for having climbed a tree because he was small in stature to see Jesus as he was going by in, in the parade, as it were, or the procession of people that were attached to him. And Zacchaeus, who was known as a chi- not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. He was extraordinarily wealthy. Tax collectors in Jesus' day had um, a practice of getting absorbent, absorbent amounts of wealth because they continually taxed more than Rome required and were given the opportunity to keep whatever they collected beyond what Rome was due. And so they were extraordinarily hated by everybody. Uh, as traitors to their own people, working for, as vassals for this Roman overlord. At the same time, they had the rationale if they were going to be hated, they might as well be rich and hated. And so they took advantage of everybody. Zacchaeus was one of those guys. He's rich, he's wealthy, but he had gotten it through cheating other people, basically stealing from them. And Jesus, uh, But he also was intrigued by Jesus because Jesus talked to people like him and said it was possible to get right with God and you were welcomed in his kingdom, too. And Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. They have this conversation. And by the time it's done, Zacchaeus rises up and says, you know, I have all this resource. And I've got a lot of it in ways that I'm ashamed of. But I've heard the words of Jesus. And I want to make a change in my life. And so I'm going to give a lot of this back and I'm repay it. He talked about giving half of his goods and fourfold return. And by the time he's done making his declaration, Jesus makes his own declaration. And he says, behold, he says, hear this word, that I tell you a truth, that salvation has come to this house. Because because this man is responding to the call of God in his life, and he's trying to make right what he has done wrong. And and Jesus then says, this is why I've come. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And there is room for even crooked Men like Zacchaeus and anyone who is willing to come into my kingdom and experience the life that I have to offer. But you know what it reminded us of? It reminds us of this, that when we truly are impacted by Christ, it affects the way in which we live our lives out. And maybe there were things in our past that we would have been okay doing that were not okay. It's not okay. And so again, whether however we rationalize it, God calls us to live, listen, essentially a life of honesty. And it doesn't matter what what the culture says necessarily, it, it matters what Jesus taught us. And one of the things the Bible is so clear about is the importance of living an essentially honest, grateful life, but seeking to not, to not be consumed in coveting what other people have, nor to be envious of those who are better off than us, nor if we're put in a position of power, are we to, to somehow be cavalier about the way in which we use that? And listen, why? Here's why. Some of us are in positions of management. Some of us actually own a business. We employ people we are to treat people well we are to treat people justly we're not to simply squeeze people at the same token people are to work. when we follow christ we make a commitment to do excellent work and whatever we've been entrusted with um, in some ways there is no meaning deep, meaningless work that everything we do can become in its own way an act of worship to god if it's done as unto him from sitting at the highest place in the corporate office in the corner of the highest building in the middle of the city center to maybe sweeping a street or doing janitorial work. It doesn't matter in the eyes of God. At the end of the day, how we do what we do, the ethic we bring into it, the honesty, the essential goodness. Listen, so much of what we're going to look at here is going to remind us of those truths that God can be honored in the small and in the great. It has everything to do with the dignity of who we see ourselves as in his eyes. Listen, there's a passage here. I'll show you. In Luke 12, it says this, and this is in your handout. Uh, Jesus was uh, teaching, uh, he gave a story, but before he even does that, he made this statement. Look what he says. He says, take heed, be very careful about how you live your life. Look at verse 15, Luke 12. He says, and beware of covetousness. Now, covetousness, we're gonna talk a lot more about this in a couple of weeks. It's actually the 10th commandment. Jesus says, be very careful about being consumed with things that are outside of God's plan for your life and that actually are unhealthy for us or are getting consumed in stuff that doesn't matter nearly as much as having our life prioritized in the right direction towards God. Look what he says. He says, take heed of covetousness, beware of it, be very careful about not letting your heart get gripped with something that is going to pull you off course. Jesus is saying, beware of covetousness getting consumed because a person's life, look what he says there, does not consist at the end of the day when all is said and done, a, a person's life cannot be defined by the abundance of the things that they own or possess. That there is that this is not a criteria of what success looks like. It's not how much we acquire. It's not how much we own. It's not how much we possess. It's not how much money is left in the bank account at the end of our day. That is not what makes a person a success. Now, that's what sometimes our culture tells us is a success, and we get that. Money has power and has ability to bless with it, and Jesus talked a lot about doing good. If we've been given resource, that's a good thing. Manage it. It's okay to be ambitious and to want to improve and expand. No problem with that. Jesus never said that was wrong, but what he did say it was wrong was to define our lives on the basis of what we achieve in an only temporal way. And so much of the culture's drive is to achieve at all costs. And the, 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 listen, the, the morality, the compassion, the human component is removed. And I think in a technical world like ours, and we see a lot of people coming into resource There's that very real tendency to pull out the people component. And so Jesus says this. He says, look, then he tells them a story. He spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man, Jesus says, yielded plentifully. Look at this. And he says, and this, this person, this business person who expanded, thought within himself saying, man, this has worked out so much better than I could have even imagined. What shall I do since this has gone beyond what I thought was possible? I don't have any more room to store my crops. I've, it's prospered beyond my expectation. And so he said, this is what I will do. And I love the way it, it, Jesus says this. He says, you know what he said to himself? This is what I will do. I will pull down my barns. I will build even greater barns. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have done so well for yourself. You have many goods laid up for so many years. You know what? You can relax now. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Basically, live the good life and party up. And Jesus said, "Thou, You are a fool. Thou fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. And whose will these things be? That you have worked so hard for to provide. Jesus turns to the crowd of people that he's talking to and he says, Listen, so is this person who lays up for himself treasure but is uh, not rich towards God. And we talk about, remember, we talked about the connection when we love God, how it's going to show up in the way we treat people, right? That's what we talked about. And the, basically, Jesus is saying, Don't, the person who lives, a life like this and excludes, being, uh, doesn't live with an eternal perspective is ultimately going to suffer the consequence of it. You know, I, I was, uh, by the way, that phrase, be rich towards God. Jesus says, be careful about living a life that is not rich towards God. This week, I had an opportunity to attend a funeral. It was on Monday. Walked across the street. It was somebody who I had known, a couple, a very older, older couple, had uh, reacquainted themselves with our church after being gone for decades, really, and they had a connection with my grandfather. I remembered them, brief, you know, not a lot. Um, had gotten to know them the last year or two just in passing, but um, because there was a root and a connection to this man, this, this older man had died, and um, I felt that I, I should participate in, in honoring who he had been. He had been someone who had really uh, helped the church in its earliest stages, uh, before my time even, and yet had shown a youth of heart. And I lo- and I just I, I loved he- I- the fact is I would see he and his wife come in, much older, and um, I just thought, wow, you know, they can come in here in here and and uh, listen to our music and this young guy talk. Uh, Tell myself I'm young. I don't. I don't. I'm not younger than I um, than they were. So you know, I, and I thought, you know, they've been so faithful. I, I, I went. I went to that funeral, and I said, you know what? I sat, by the way, in that, and there was barely anybody there. Barely anybody there. The the the, the place was nearly empty. Uh, some of our staff had gone to help as pallbearers. There was uh, the wife of this man, 55 years been married. Um, a couple of foster children. They never had children of their own, but they felt like the Lord had wanted them to be a blessing. And they had brought many foster children into their home, and they had loved them kindly and tenderly through many, many years. And many different ones had been affected by their very real faith, and some of them were there as well. They were not their children, but they were as if they were their children. And then there were a few friends. It was not much. It was very modest, very simple. If you were to ask most people, most people would write it off as being, well, this person is just won't be missed that much. There were no articles written, nothing, no No. no processions. Um, I, you know, I like to read history, biographies. Uh, I, I, I like to even read things in the paper telling about a person's life and the effect that that person's life has had. There were no articles going to be written here. A lot of people that are celebrated in our world, um, heaven is silent. It is silent. But this man, it dawned on me, That according to Jesus, I was honoring someone who was essentially heroic, and the reason it caught me is because I said I had asked the wife. We had said, you know, I don't really know too much about what happened to your life um, between the years, these decades. Can you tell me a little bit about your husband, he he, who just died? And I asked her for permission if I could share, and she said, sure. You know, she said I wrote something, and she handed us this, and uh, it was it's seven pages. I'm not going to read all seven pages, but I, I won't. You know what? I read it, and, and I was moved. I'm going to just read a couple pieces. James Mathis was born on October 9, 1932, Tupuello, Arkansas, to cotton farmers. She talks about the day that she first met him, or at least when it first dawned on her that they were going to have a life together. Then and there, I knew this, this guy was for real. it it was as if he spoke to my heart. The Lord witnessed to me. That was her way of saying she felt like the Lord impressed her, that this was an honest, truthful, and a rock-solid person. That was all true, by the way. And as we have lived our lives together for these five-plus decades, almost six, these attributes and many others have all been lived out in his life. That is one reason why it's so hard to live without him, because in my eyes, he was so perfect in every way. We didn't have a lot of money, but every year before he got dementia, he says we would go on a vacation somewhere. I always enjoyed being with him and having him with me, even when we would just go to the grocery store. I don't know how sweet that was. But then she says this: "Check this out." She says he would he would still always ask me even after he he was getting more and more incapacitated, he would always ask me if he could help me to do anything. Even when he got so unsteady on his feet, he would still ask me, if he could help me do something. Needless to say, we have had a great life together. I know this life was only a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. I know God has his reasons for not giving Jim another miracle of healing. The Lord also told me that, or at least I feel that we will have all eternity to run through heaven together. And believe me, I am certainly looking forward to that day when Jesus comes or he comes for me. He would always tell me, this is my husband, he would always tell me that he loved me and that he would always love me. And naturally, this was my feeling as well, and I would tell him the same thing. Come, you know, on one of the last days as he was in the rest home, he said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And he said, I love you three. (laughs) And I said, I love you four. And to me, this is where I said, the scope wasn't big, but oh, the depth because when the person who knows us best, the people know us best, testify to the genuineness of who we are before God, it speaks volumes, far more volumes than any of the temporary accomplishments that may be put onto a piece of paper. To me, he was so perfect in every way, he treated me like a queen. The term southern gentleman certainly fit him. And when the minister marries you and says until death do you part, I say, it's, it's not for me because I plan on being with him forever. Is that romantic? Yes. <laughs> Is it beautiful? Yes. Is it heroic? Absolutely. A life lived for God, a life lived faithfully in love, a life committed to blessing others, children who didn't have parents that could keep care of them, who were honorable, kind, who gave themselves, this is rich towards God. You see? What a contrast. You know, going back to that 12th chapter of Luke, do you know what precipitated Jesus' statement about take heed, beware of covetousness, and then he got into the parable? Do you know what started it? you know what the initiating agent was? Do you know what? It was an intrusion. Jesus was in the middle of teaching. What we didn't touch on here was that he was in the middle of having a conversation and talking to the people about principles of God when he was interrupted in a very arbitrary way, it seems, or at least perhaps in a way that caught everybody off guard. Because out of the crowd, as Jesus is teaching, the picture we're given is that there was a man who makes a statement. I'll put it up there. We'll put it up there and show you what it was. This this man who's described as a brother who had a brother. So this man says to Jesus, he says, from the crowd, as Jesus is teaching, this man comes out of the crowd and he says, teacher, teacher, will you tell my brother that he has to divide the inheritance with me? And then we're told that Jesus turned to him and he said, and I, you know, I love the way that man, who made you, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Now, what do you, I don't think he said it exactly like that, but the point was, sir, I am not interested in being the one who divides up your money issues or deals. I'm not a lawyer, and I'm interested in trying to solve your business issue and your uh, division with your brother over how much money you are being given. And then Jesus says, take heed. He turns to everybody and says, you know, you need to be very careful about allowing a spirit of covetousness to come and dominate your life. Take heed of it. Be very careful because, listen, you will never be defined, never be defined on the basis of the abundance of the things you possess or own. And let me tell you a story. That story is this, that there was a rich man in his crop, then it's when he goes into it. and he, See, you know, in Jewish, Jewish law at that day, uh, civil law allotted a double portion of the old, to the older brother in a family. The rest of it was divvied up by all the others heirs. And the older brother was not required to take that 50% and give it, he could keep it all for himself. No doubt this younger brother is listening to Jesus talk. Maybe his brother was in the crowd with him. Maybe they've been having a family disagreement over, this. not right, you owe me, it's, it's, it's not fair. And, and the other one was being stubborn. Maybe the other brother was an admirer of Jesus as well. Maybe Jesus was talking about something that had a direct effect that caused him to say, would you help me? Would you help us? We we can't solve, this. I I need you to talk to him about this because he's not going to give me what I believe I deserve and Jesus says I'm not interested in that right now. The bigger question my friend for you he's saying is what is your sense of value and worth and priority and so it's not like Jesus even directly says is it wrong or right to sort of you know, be just and in, in, in to go after something that is legitimately yours. Jesus isn't really making a statement around that. What he's saying is be very careful about being consumed about the wrong things and letting that define our life. That's what he's saying. There are some things we can't control. We need to leave with the Lord's hands. There are some things we can deal with and we, it's okay to do so. It might even be the right thing to do. But the point is Jesus was getting at this and he was intensely digging into it. And it's a wonderful lesson that he gives us, right? Because basically what he tells us is be very careful about priorities, Remember to live with an eternal perspective. Uh, Be very careful about assuming, particularly when it comes to life, that we really control anything. That life is always to be understood as a precarious gift that is fragile, just as fragile as this body of mine is. It is capable of being crushed. It contains life, but life is not relegated permanently here. In its present form, there is a day. One of the reasons I appreciate going to a funeral at certain times in my life, I've learned profound lessons at funerals. And I have heard the voice of God, I think, speak clearly, even sharing at them. is because, again, I'm reminded of what is most important in life and how oftentimes we are so caught on and focused on the wrong things. We're so anxious about so many things. And in reality, we're not listening to Jesus when he taught us, live a life that is rich towards God. Remember what true blessing looks like. Remember what real success is. Remember every gift that has been given, every point of prosperity, achievement, every capacity is only a temporal entrustment whereby we are given the opportunity to honor God with it and to bless others with it and to live a life that hopefully is going to be an example to other people. With that in mind, there are two pieces of Scripture, one from the old and one from the new that I would like us to look at real quick here. The one from the old is in Job. I put it on the bottom of your section of your handout there, Job 8, verse 13 through 15. It's the message translation, which makes it a bit more poetic and, and sometimes takes a greater degree of liberty with the text. But at the same time, I love the way this is captured. This is what Job writes. He says, that's what happens in the 8th chapter. That's what happens to all who forget God. All their hopes come to nothing. Look at this. We live a life that forgets God we, we hang. It's like they hang their life from one thin thread. They hitch their fate to a spider web. One jiggle and the thread breaks. One jab and the whole web collapses. Timothy, New Testament there, middle column. Paul writes to young Timothy, chapter 6, verses 9 through 14. He says this, but people who long to be rich, who are consumed with it, can fall into temptations. They can be trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. In other words, if we're not careful, we're so consumed about achieving, if our ambition, which can be a good thing, becomes an unhealthy thing, and we begin to define our life and our success on the basis of what we achieve or acquire, we run the risk of compromising at a, a lot of different levels, and we have to be very careful because at the end of the day, because of a quest to do certain things or to have certain things or to acquire certain things, we can put ourselves in a place that leads us into down, down a road that can cause a whole lot of damage, not only to our own heart and soul, but to a lot of other people as well. Let me tell you, a lot of people who end up in jail for corruption and thievery um, did not start with that intention. They got there through a series of, of compromises on, on gray and questionable issues. One lie led to another, one, one decision lead, led to another. And again, it's a reminder of why small things matter. It, they matter whether or not they lead to the big things, because Jesus sees everything, but they really do have an impact on us. Look what he goes on to say, though, in this. He says this. Look at it. And this is an often misquoted verse, by the way. Look at verse 10. For the love of money, the love of money, not money. Money is a neutral. It is powerful. But we give our life for it at some level. We, we give our hours for resource. Therefore, that's why money is such a powerful commodity, because it is a reflection at some level of what we give our life for. So when I give this, I give a part of my life. I, it's, it's an interesting dynamic of power, but it says here, the love of money. It's the love. It's the consuming love of it that is the root. At, at, it is a root of so many things that are ultimately evil in their outcome. Some people craving money, Paul says, have even wandered from the true faith, and they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But then he says something to Timothy, who, again, he was a young, a younger believer, leader, and he's, Paul's trying to remind Timothy, who has a history, by the way, of being sort of more passive and reluctant in his willingness to assume responsibility. And God, I think, is causing some of us to not be afraid, even of our own weakness, and not to be passive in the way we step forward to maybe maybe take responsibility to try to honor God in certain ways. Paul goes on to say this, but you, Timothy, are a man of God. He, as if he's speaking to you and all of us here. You're a man of God. You are a woman. You're a person who loves God. You are you are someone who has given their life to God, who wants to honor God. So I want you to run away from these, these evil things. I want you to, to pursue what is right. Pursue righteousness. Seek to live a godly life. This, it's like he's talking to us. And, and live this godly life with faith and with love and with perseverance and gentleness in the way you treat others. Fight the good fight. Fighting the good fight of faith. In other words, it's not always going to be easy. Sometimes it's going to require grappling and wrestling and it's going to We're going to fail. And we're going to sometimes flame, flame out in areas that are really with struggle for us. And we may, we may sin and, and make a mess of things, but you know what? Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep contending. Ask God to let his grace flow over our lives. You look what he goes on to say. Fight the good fight of faith. True faith. Hold, hold tightly to eternal life to which God has called you. This is what it means to be rich towards God, which you have confessed in front of other people and people are aware of of your confessed love for God and Christ. And I charge you before God who gives life to everyone and before Christ Jesus who himself gave a good testimony himself before Pontius Pilate that you would obey this command without wavering that that no one would find fault with you now and even until the Lord Jesus Christ himself returns and comes again. I mean, there's this great uh, just uh, exhortation being given to Timothy to seek to live a life that is rich towards God. And here's what it looks like and contend for that, and pursue it, and it's an intentional choice on our part, not just to take the easy way, but to do the way that is the Lord is calling us to move towards, be rich towards God. Going back to this whole idea of greed, kind of shifting the tone a little bit, every time I talk about this, um, this whole idea of greed, I, I, and, and what motivates a lot of people, rich and poor, in between to steal, I was reminded of of a real-life story that I read about years ago, and I've, I've shared it once or twice, and, and it's, it's not a makeup story. It's just a real thing. I was re- it, it, this is a copy of a, of an, a small article in the, from the Chronicle years back, and um, I love it. Every time I get a chance to tell it, it's, it's called How a Hungry Diner Says He Got a Raw Deal at the Oyster Bar. All right? Check this out. Alan Wald likes to eat oysters, and I mean lots of oysters. After four trips to the oyster bar at All-You-Can-Eat Buffet in Pacifica, Wald was still eating oysters. The manager tapped him on the shoulder. That's all you can eat, he told Wald. (laughs) The manager said Wald had eaten 75 oysters. Wald said he'd eaten only 40 oysters tops. And what difference does the number of oysters make anyway, said Wald. Outraged, Wald demanded an apology. He didn't get one. The two parties faced off Wednesday night inside a small claims courtroom in South San Francisco to resolve an issue that is anything but small. And here it is. Is it possible to eat too much at an all-you-can-eat buffet? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is, said Ken Albrecht, manager of the Moonraker restaurant in Rockaway Beach, who said common decency and etiquette require limits even at an unlimited buffet table. The man had piled up the oysters on his plate. It was like a pyramid. He had taken all the oysters, and other customers were complaining that there was nothing left. Wald, a postal service manager from Pacifica, insisted that he was within his rights. All you can eat means all you can eat. (laughs) Restaurant owner John Schneider offered to refund the $40 tab for Wald and his companion, but Wald demanded $400 for humiliation and embarrassment. (laughs) Judge Jonathan Jones stood there, listening impassively as the two sides railed at each other for a quarter of an hour. Your Honor, he was basically cleaning us out, testified Albrecht. All I did was politely and respectfully ask him to limit his intake to one dozen of each kind of shellfish. That's quite enough food for anyone. Schneider then introduced three etiquette books into evidence. Etiquette, he reminded the judge, is the rules of proper behavior that have come down to us through the years. The books urged buffet patrons to eat in moderation. Otherwise, said one book, it was possible to look like a pig. Schneider underlined the passage and showed it to the judge. That made Wald even madder. He called it a matter of principle. He was shaking with fury and glaring at the restaurateurs. Your Honor, this was a crummy thing to do to me, he said. This was wrong. I was discriminated against and my rights were violated. The judge took the case under advisement, which meant it was too touchy to decide on the spot. He, He said he would later rule on it. Afterwards, Schneider said Wald was welcome to come back anytime, provided he eats responsibly. He hoped that there would be no hard feelings. It's just that oysters do cost $0.33 apiece wholesale. You know, I lost a lot of money just on those oysters. And that's not counting the other things he ate, says Schneider. And then he, then he says this. And you know what? The Bible says that gluttony is one of the deadly sins. <laughs> to which Wald replied, so is greed. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I mean, how, how, do you, how do you go to court over an oyster bar? Uh, and, and it's amazing to me. Now, as we go home, as we begin to take this with us, as we've been sitting with it, and, this, and, and we've been moving into places around this, you know, we've laughed, we've, we've, we've maybe given our heart into, for a moment to thinking about what real heroism looks like, and what it really means to live a blessed life, be rich towards God, the humble investment of our life into some, in a few people who truly say this is the real deal. Um, let me put this on the board real quick. One of the keys for honoring this command then is to guard, as we've just seen, against allowing greed to have a foothold in our heart. This, this uh, excessive desire to acquire, to possess, to obtain, that causes us to compromise our integrity and cross lines that bring about great personal sorrow, like that 10th verse in 1 Timothy 6 says, um, it, it, it is something we need to be careful about. You know, I, I often remind myself that in, in the opportunities come for us to, to grow. In simple ways around this, there will be times where we will pay for something and someone will make a mistake and they may give us more back than what we we were supposed to get or a mistake might be made in our favor in some other aspect or we might listen one of the questions I was get, <laughs> one of the questions I was asked at an early place in my Christian life that really helped me around this to at least contend to be integrous in ways that I would not have normally have been, was the question is, how much is your integrity worth? A quarter? A dollar? 250? 250? At what point are we okay? What, what point do we say, Lord, you know what? It matters to me more than anything. More order this temporal thing, I'll give it back. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to rationalize. It. I'm not going to, you know what? I'm just going to say, Lord, you know what? I want to do what's right in your eyes. Sometimes it's harder to do than other times. Sometimes we give it back and we, we're hoping that our honesty will be acknowledged and they'll go, oh, don't worry about it, you know. Take the extra meal. A lot of times they say, oh, thank you. And we walk away. We walk away. You know, oh, man, you know, I wish. You know, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying is that being honest, being real, this is, this, is, this is pleasing to the Lord. And small choices, when very few people see, Really do help us when it comes to the big ones that are going to have huge impact. When we practice doing what is right in small ways, it shows up at the major crises of our life. Secondly, lastly, it's not just a, com- a commandment that calls us to be a people who guard against greed, it's a reminder that we are be- to be a people who are known for having a giving heart. It's a reminder that we are to be a people who um, are not simply content not to. To steal, but we are like our, our great example, Jesus, to be a giver of life. And um, in Ephesians, it said, Paul wrote this, he said to the people, he was writing to new believers, some of whom have had a pattern in their past of stealing. They came from a culture where sometimes theft was almost admired and um, respected. <laughs> and he says, listen, the person who used to steal, you need to stop it. Let him who steals, steal no more. Not only that, you, you, you need to go to work and you need to work well and you need to be honest. He says, not only that though, it's not just about what you, you're not to do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to then in turn become a person who's capable of being a giver and a blesser. This is the way to live. Uh, there's something about that. that reflects Jesus' heart. Because and God's heart. Because at the core, some people say, What is God like? Yes, God is love. Yes, God is just, yes, God is holy. But you know what? God is a giver. For God so loved this world that he what? That he gave his only begotten son. He gave. If we are going to be like him, we will be a people who we give, we bless. We're not interested in taking or cheating or getting our edge. We're looking for ways to honor God, small ways, in, in ways that will be impactful modestly in other people's lives for the glory of God. No one may ever know, but God knows. Last thing we'll say on that is this. C.S. Lewis said this. God loves us not because we are lovable, but because he is love. Not because he needs to receive anything from us, but because he delights to give it. I love that. and be like him. Lord, we want to welcome you into our lives in real ways. Some of us, You know, we're really contending, Lord, we're trying, we're trying to really welcome you into the places, and whatever we've been entrusted with, Lord, I just pray that you would put it in our heart to want to contend for stuff, because we want to live a life that's rich towards you, and we want people to be able to say at the end of our day that that, um, we were pretty real, we were honest in our love for you, we were honest in the way in which we treated others, we may never have our name in spotlights, and if we do, it's only temporal at best, But we get a chance to live this life of ours. and We don't know the extent of our day nor how long it's going to... I don't know it, Lord. I don't know when my day is going to end on this earth. But I know it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to bless you, make a difference in the life of others. Keep us from the potholes and the places uh, that we can fall into, the traps and the, the ensnarements that would incapacitate us from being able to honor you with our lives. We're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about sinlessness, Lord. We're just talking about trying to grow more and more in ways that would be pleasing to you and at times calls to points of living in a countercultural way. Um, It it really, at the end of the day, doesn't matter what our culture tells us is most important, although we're all affected by it. What really matters, Lord, is what you say is important. And you taught us that to love you and to love people well all the days of our lives is what really matters. Fill us with true wisdom. Help us to run deep, deep into the ground, our roots, Help us to do this. Give us grace. And I pray that you remind us that we are to live with an eternal perspective, not get caught up in the pursuits (laughs) of things that will pass away then that will in turn destroy our ability to live with with gratitude with the things you've given. So I pray that you bless this time as we close the service with our time of giving as a people, uh, this song with all of its passion and just um, energy as it makes the declaration of everything we've been sharing. We ask for your blessing in these closing minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, God.